The paradox of the present. Does that come to pass? No, it doesn't. Something comes, however. In waiting, that stops and leaves all coming behind. Maurice Blanchot. Intervals or thresholds form part of the topology of passion. There are zones of forgetting, of loss, of death, of fear and anxiety, but also of longing, of hope, of adventure, of promising and expecting. In many respects, an interval is also a source of suffering and of pain. Remembering becomes a passion if it battles against time's surrendering of the past to oblivion. From this perspective, Proust's novel on time is a passion story. Waiting becomes passion if the temporal interval which separates the present from the expected future expands into the open. Waiting creates suffering if the coming to be of what is expected or has been promised, namely the moment of the final possession of it or of the final arrival, is delayed. The temporal interval stretches between two conditions or events. The meantime is a transitional time in which the one occupying it is in no definite condition. There is nothing which defines this in-between. The excess of indistinctness creates a feeling of restlessness and anxiety. In other words, a threshold feeling. What is worrying and frightening is the transition towards the unknown. Hesitation is the form of movement at the threshold. Timidity is also part of the threshold feeling. The time between departure and arrival is an uncertain time during which we must reckon with the incalculable. But it is also a time of hope or expectation, which prepares the arrival. The path which separates the place of departure from the place of arrival is also an interval. Like place itself, it is semantically rich. The path of a pilgrimage, for instance, is not an empty space between two places that is to be traversed as quickly as possible. Rather, it constitutes the very goal to be reached. Being on one's way here is altogether meaningful. The walking means doing penance, healing, or gratefulness. It is a prayer. The pilgrim's path is not merely a thoroughfare, but a transition to a there. In temporal terms, the pilgrim is on the way to the future, which is expected to bring salvation. To that extent, he is not a tourist. A transition is an alien notion to a tourist, for whom everywhere is here and now. A tourist is not on the way in the proper sense. Paths are impoverished, turned into empty thoroughfares that would not be worth seeing. The totalization of here and now divests the in-between spaces of any meaning. Today's experience is characterized by the fact that it is very poor in transitions. If the goal is the sole point of orientation, then the spatial interval to be crossed before reaching it is simply an obstacle to be overcome as quickly as possible. 
pure orientation towards the goal deprives the in-between space of all meaning, emptying it to become a corridor without any value of its own. Acceleration is the attempt to make the temporal interval that is needed for bridging the spatial interval disappear altogether. The rich meaning of the path disappears. Acceleration leads to a semantic impoverishment of the world. Space and time no longer mean very much. Once the spatio-temporal interval is perceived exclusively under the negative aspect of loss, there will be efforts to make it disappear altogether. Electronic memories and other technological possibilities for recurrence destroy the temporal interval which is responsible for forgetting. They make what is past instantaneously retrievable and available. Nothing must evade this instantaneous access. The intervals which work against instantaneity are removed. Electronic mail produces instantaneity by destroying the paths as spatial intervals in their entirety. It dispenses with space itself. Intervals are destroyed in order to produce total proximity and simultaneity. Any remoteness, any distance is removed. The aim is to make everything available in the here and now. Instantaneity becomes passion. Whatever cannot be rendered present does not exist. Everything has to be present. In between spaces and in between times, which have the effect of removing presence, are abolished. There are only two conditions left nothing and the present. There is no in-between anymore. But being is more than being present. Human life is impoverished when all forms of in-between are removed from it. Human culture is also rich in in-betweens. Celebrations often give form to the in-between. Thus, for instance, Advent time is an in-between time a time of waiting. The totalization of the here removes the there. The nearness of the here destroys the aura of distance. The thresholds which separate the there from the here, the visible from the invisible, the alien from the familiar, all disappear. The absence of thresholds results from the compulsion to make everything visible and available. Any there disappears in a side-by-side -side of events, sensations, and information that has no gaps. Everything is here. The there is no longer of any importance. The human being is no longer a threshold creature. Yes, thresholds cause suffering and passion, but they also delight. The effect of intervals is not only that they delay, they also have the function of ordering and structuring. Without intervals, there is only an unstructured, directionless side-by-side -side or confusion of events. 
Intervals structure not only perception, but also life. Transitions and sections provide life with a direction, hence with meaning. The elimination of intervals produces a space without directions. As there is no well-defined section in such a space, it is also impossible to complete a specific phase that would form part of a meaningful sequence. Where events follow each other in quick succession, there is also no resolve to reach completion. In a space without direction, it is possible to end a course of action at any given time, and to begin a new one instead. Given numerous possibilities for further connections, completion does not make a lot of sense. Whoever completes may miss the connection. A space made up of possibilities for further connection does not have any continuity. In it, again and again, decisions are made anew, and new possibilities are constantly pursued, making time discontinuous. No decision is final. Decisions once made have to give way to new decisions. What is suspended is linear, irreversible time, namely that of destiny. The internet space is a space without direction. It is woven from possible connections or links which do not fundamentally differ from each other. No direction or option has an absolute priority over the others. Ideally, a change of direction is possible at any time. There is no finality. Everything is kept in limbo. The form of movement in the internet space is not a walking, striding, or munching, but surfing or browsing, originally meaning to graze, or metaphorically to dip into a book. These forms of movement are not linked to a direction. They also do not know of any fixed paths. The internet space does not consist of phases of continuity and transition, but of discontinuous events or facts. Thus, no progress or development takes place in it. It is an ahistorical space. The time of internet space is a discontinuous and point-like now time. You move from one link to the next, from one now to another. The now does not possess duration. Nothing encourages you to linger for long on a particular now spot. Due to the numerous possibilities and alternatives, there is no compulsion, no necessity to linger at a particular place. Pro prolonged lingering would only produce boredom. The end of the linear constitution of the world not only results in loss, it also makes possible new forms of being and perceiving. Progressing gives way to hovering. Our perception becomes sensitized to non-causal relations. The end of that narrative linearity 
whose strict selectivity forces events on to a narrow path, makes it necessary to find orientation and to be able to move amidst a high density of events. The arts and music of today also reflect this new form of perception. Aesthetic tension is not created by a narrative development, but by the superimposition and compression of events. When intervals become shorter, the rate of succession of events accelerates. The compression of events, information, and images makes it impossible to linger. The furious pace with which successive images pass does not permit any lingering contemplation. The images only fleetingly touch the retina and do not attract lasting attention. Quickly, they eject their visual stimulus and fade away. In contrast to knowledge and experience, in the emphatic sense, information and experienced events produce no lasting or deep effects. The notions of truth and knowledge by now sound archaic. They rest on duration. Truth must endure. But in fact, it fades away in the face of an increasingly shorter present. And knowledge is made possible by a temporal gathering which inframes the present with past and future. Such extended time characterizes truth as well as knowledge. The production of technological or digital products is also subject to ever shorter intervals. They age very quickly these days. The continual invention of newer versions and models means that they are short-lived. The compulsion towards the new shortens product life cycles. This compulsion is probably caused by the fact that nothing is able to produce duration. There is no work, no completion, but only continually versions, new versions, and variations. Even design, as a pure play with forms, and even pure beauty in the Kantian sense, i.e. the semblance of beauty without any deep meaning, without involvement of anything extrasensory, which merely causes pleasure, require, on the basis of their definitions alone, permanent change, which is meant to serve the purpose of enlivening, enlivening the mind, in other words, holding the attention. No meaning bestows duration on the semblance of beauty. No meaning comports time. The shrinkage of the present does not render it empty or thin it out. The paradox, rather, is that everything makes up the present at the same time, that everything has the opportunity, even must have the opportunity, of becoming part of the present. The present shortens and loses all duration. Its time frame diminishes more and more. At the same time, everything pushes into the present. The consequence is a pushing and shoving of images events, and information, which makes any lingering contemplation impossible. Thus, one zaps through the world.
Fragrant Crystal of Time Even in broadest daylight, time moves quietly like a thief in the night. To stare at time, shout in its face until it startles and stops. Salvation or catastrophe? Proust's narrative temporal technique may be interpreted as a reaction against the age of haste, une poche de art, in which art itself is brief. Art loses its epic breath. A general shortness of breath befalls the world. For Proust, the age of haste is the age of the railway, which, according to him, kills all contemplation. Proust's critique of time also aims at cinematographic time, which makes reality disintegrate into a quick succession of images. His temporal strategy, directed against the age of haste, consists in helping time to acquire duration again, to return its scent to it. Proust's search for lost time is a reaction against the progressive de-temporalization of existence, which disintegrates the latter. The self disintegrates into a succession of moments. Thus, it loses all stability, all permanence. The man that I was, Proust writes, no longer exists. I am another person. Je suis une autre. Proust's novel about time, In Search of Lost Time, is an attempt to stabilize the identity of the self, which threatens to disintegrate. The temporal crisis is experienced as an identity crisis. The key experience in the novel, as is well known, is the scent, the taste, of the medallion soaked in lime blossom tea. An intense feeling of happiness runs through Marcel when he brings a spoonful of tea with a little soaked piece of madeleine to his lips. An exquisite pleasure has invaded my senses, something isolated, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once, the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. This new sensation having had the effect which love has, of filling me with a precious essence. Or rather, this essence was not in me, it was me. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, contingent, mortal. A small fragment of time in the pure state, un peu de temps à l'état pur, is afforded Marcel. This fragrant essence of time triggers a feeling of duration. Thus, he feels entirely freed from the vicissitudes of time, contingence du temps. A temporal alchemy connects sensations and memories in a crystal of time, which is outside of the past, as well as the present. Proust himself actually speaks of a fragrant crystal, a crystalline succession of your silent, sonorous, fragrant, limpid hours. Une silencieuse, sonore, odorante et limpide. 
time is compressed into sealed vessels, each one of them filled with things of a color, a scent, and a temperature that are absolutely different from one another. Dans chacune série, remplie de choses d'une couleur, d'une odeur, d'une température absolument différente. Although this vase full of scents, une vase remplie de parfum, is an extra-temporal place to the extent that in it nothing elapses or is subject to temporal disintegration, it is nevertheless not supported by a timeless transcendence. The fragrant celestial nourishment, la celeste nourriture, is made up of temporal ingredients. Its scent is not that of a timeless eternity. Proust's strategy of duration releases the scent of time. It presupposes an historical existence. It presupposes that one has a curriculum vitae. Its scent is a scent of imminence. Interestingly, the enchanting scent of time develops through the real scent. Apparently, the scent of smell is an organ of remembrance and reawakening. Although a mémoire involuntaire, involuntary memory, may also be caused by tactile experiences, such as the stiffness of starched napkins or the sensation caused by unevil cobblestones, by acoustic ones, such as the view of the steeples, such as the sound a spoon makes on a plate, or visual ones, such as the sound a spoon, ah, such as the view of the steeples of Martinsville. It is especially the recollection triggered by the smell and taste of the tea, which exudes a particularly intense scent of time. It resurrects the world of childhood in its entirety. It seems that sense and tastes reach deep into the past, touch on vast spaces of time. In this way, they form a scaffold holding the earliest memories. A single fragrance resurrects a childhood universe which was believed to have been lost. And as in the game wherein the Japanese amuse themselves by filling a porcelain bowl with water, and steeping in it little pieces of paper, which until then are without character or form, but, the moment they become wet, stretch and twist, and take on color and distinctive shape, become flowers or houses or people, solid and recognizable, so that moment, in that moment all the flowers in our garden, and in Monsieur Swan's park, and the water lilies on the Vivonne, and the good folk of the village, and their little dwellings, and the parish church, and the whole of Combray and its surroundings, taking shape and solidity, spraying into being, town and gardens alike, from my cup of tea. A tiny and almost impalpable drop of tea covers such an expanse that a vast structure of recollection finds room in it. Taste, le goût, and smell, l'odeur, 
survive the demise of the personage and the decline of objects. They are islands of duration within the current of time that takes everything with it. But when from a long distant past nothing subsists after the people are dead, after the things are broken and scattered, taste and smell alone, more fragile but more enduring, more immaterial, more persistent, more faithful, remain poised a long time, like souls, remembering, waiting, hoping, amid the ruins of all the rest. In his Understanding Media, Marshall McLuhan refers to an interesting experiment which seems to provide a physiological basis, so to speak, for Proust's experience of the Madeleine. The simulation, stimulation of brain tissue during surgery revives many memories, and these are saturated with special scents and smells which structure them into units and thus form a scaffold for early experiences. Scent is steeped in history, so to speak. It is filled with stories, with narrative images. The sense of smell, as McLuhan remarks, is iconic. You might also say that it is the epic narrative sense, connecting, interweaving, compressing temporal events into an image, a narrative form. Scents, which are steeped in images and history, are able to stabilize a self that is threatened with dissociation by providing it with a framing identity, an image of self. A stretch of time allows the self to come back to itself. This return to self is blissful. Where there are scents, there is self-gathering. Ascent is slow, thus, as a medium, it is not adapted to the age of haste. Sense cannot be presented in as fast a sequence as optical images. In contrast to the latter, they also cannot be accelerated. A society dominated by sense would probably also not develop any inclinations towards change or acceleration. It would live off its recollections and its memory, off those things that are slow and long-lasting. The Age of Haste, by contrast, is a cinematographic age, one that is to a large extent shaped by the visual. Such an age accelerates the world into a cinematograph film of things. Time disintegrates into a mere sequence of present moments. The age of haste is an age without sense. The scent of time is a manifestation of duration. Thus, it escapes activity, l'action, and immediate enjoyment, la jouissance immédiate. Scent is indirect takes detours and is mediated. Proust's narrative temporal technique 
opposes temporal disassociation by framing events, uniting them into a coherent whole, or structuring them into certain periods. They are reassociated. A net of relations between events lets life appear liberated from sheer contingency and bestows significance on it. Proust is apparently convinced that in its depth, life represents a densely woven net of connected events, and that life is perpetually weaving fresh threads which link one individual and one event to another, and that these threads are crossed and recrossed, doubled and redoubled to thicken the web, so that between any slightest point of our past and all the others, a rich network of memories gives us an almost infinite variety of communicating paths to choose from. Proust opposes the incoherence of point-like presences, into which time threatens to disintegrate, with a temporal texture of references and similarities. As soon as one looks deeper into being one, recognizes as soon as one looks deeper into being, one recognizes that all things are interconnected, that even the least of them communicates with the whole world. But the age of haste does not have the time to heighten perception. Only in the depth of being does a space open in which all things lie close to one another and communicate with one another. It is just this friendliness of being which gives the world its scent. Truth also consists of relationships between events. Truth occurs when things communicate with each other on the basis of a similarity or some other form of closeness between them. When they turn towards each other and enter into relationships with each other, even befriend each other. Truth, la vérité, will be attained by him, the author, only when he takes two different objects, states the connection between them, and encloses them in the necessary links of a well-wrought style. Truth, and life too, can be attained by us only when, by comparing a quality common to two sensations, we succeed in extracting their common essence and in reuniting them to each other. Liberated from the contingencies of time within a metaphor, thus linking them to each other through the ineffable efficacy of the combination of words. Only relationships based on similarity, friendship, or affinity make things true. Truth is opposed to the accident of pure contiguity. Truth means commitment, relationship, and closeness. Only through intense relationships do things become real in the first place. What we call reality is a certain connection between these immediate sensations and the memories which envelope us simultaneously with them. A connection that is suppressed 
in a simply cinematographic vision, a unique connection which the writer has to rediscover in order to link forever in his phrase the two sets of phenomena which reality joins together. The formation of metaphors is also a practice concerning truth to the extent that it creates a network of relationships and lays open the connecting paths and channels of communication between things. The formation of metaphor counteracts the atomization of being and it is a temporal practice to the extent that it opposes the quick succession of isolated events with the duration, even fidelity, of a relationship. Metaphors are the sense of things which they release when they befriend each other. Immediate enjoyment is not capable of experiencing beauty because the beauty of a thing appears only much later, in the light of another thing, or even through the significance of a reminiscence. Beauty is owed to duration, to a contemplative synopsis. It is not a momentous brilliance or attraction, but an afterglow, a phosphorescence of things. The cinema cinematograph film of things does not have the temporality of beauty. The age of haste, its cinematographic succession of point-like presences has no access to beauty or to truth. Only in lingering contemplation, even in ascetic restraint, do things unveil their beauty their fragrant essence. It consists of temporal sedimentations emitting a phosphorescent glow.